are listening. This is episode 14 of The Minimal Pair. I'm Jean Dempsey and this is Stephanie X. Hello everybody. Hi Stephanie, how's it going? It's going okay, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Covered mosquito bites, but uh, otherwise I can't complain. It's the most mild summer in my memory, I think. Oh, so you get eaten up a lot? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but at least I'm not hot and sweaty, so. Yeah, like I said, yeah. We've had a very, in case you haven't been paying attention to St. Louis weather. Which, why would you? If you're not why ready? would you, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've had a very mild summer. Very mild for us. Usually yeah. it's very hot, very humid. Yeah, we've been lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, today we're going to talk about English as a foreign language versus English as a second language, or EFL versus ESL. Um, so, as you may have just put together, um, EFL is English as a foreign language, and ESL is English as a second language. And um, Stephanie, can you tell our listeners kind of what the main difference is between the two? Sure. So EFL is taught um, to a group of people who are generally from the same country, and they're not in the country where of where the language is spoken. Um, and then ESL is taught to people who have um, immigrated and um, you may have people from 15 different countries in the same class and they're learning English um, basically to survive in their new environment. Right, so uh, what we teach is ESL, Right. but I have had experience teaching EFL and um, it was different for a lot of reasons. For one thing, I was teaching children and now I'm teaching adults. So right. it's definitely hard to make a comparison. But I, I definitely agree with what you just said. Um, when you're teaching ESL, uh, there's a lot more urgency because the speakers are in an English-speaking country and they need to learn the language in order to make it on a day-to-day basis. Um, so they're less concerned with technicalities. Um, not that we don't do like grammar classes and, and things like that still, but um, I think, well, I think that's why the program we, where we both teach, we really like that it's fluency first because for right. them, that is their main objective. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I know that some of our listeners too are EFL teachers. And so this is kind of a way too to kind of bring them into the conversation Definitely. Um, as well and not just get kind of like our perspective on it, but others as well. Yeah, so if you teach EFL, um, and you want to add anything to what we've said concerning the distinction, we would really appreciate it because, like I said, my experience was pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but I taught little kids in France for a year. And so it, it was EFL because they were in a non-English speaking country and they were a homogenous group of French speaking children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, there was really no urgency they didn't need English in their daily lives. We did a lot of things like playing games and learning vocabulary, and um, there was not a big conversation aspect. But I think that also, um, had I been teaching older kids or mm-hmm. adults, it would have been different. So do you think your students had very similar motivations or very different motivations in why they were learning the language? Well. I, I suspect that most of them had no motivation whatsoever. <laughs> they were taking it because they had to. They had to. Um, I did have a few kids who were pretty enthusiastic about it because they had traveled with their families to English-speaking countries, so they saw the value in it. But for other students who hadn't traveled or for the younger kids, um, I think that they just thought it was kind of something fun that got them out of their regular class for a little while. <laughs> right. Because sure. like I said, we mostly played games and did vocab and things like that so right right and I think you know maybe we should talk a little bit about ESL for children although I don't have ESL experience with children I yeah purposely uh (laughs) avoided that route but um you know I was talking to somebody recently and I'm like you know I have two kids I'm not a kid person but I have two kids I can she can only talk and and I was like you know what I'm not really a dog person but I have two dogs so yeah sometimes life happens but Anyway, so with um, ESL for children, one of the reasons I kind of avoided working with kids is not because of children necessarily, but because of all the red tape involved in the school systems and how the students are either taken out of class or how much time they get with the teacher. Um, And I felt like 
a lot of times teachers were spread very thin and I didn't want to get myself into that type of a situation. Um, though I will say, you know, since I finished my master's program, I've noticed that there, the ESL programs at, a, at school age have kind of bloomed and there are more, um, more teachers available and less of the overlap. Yeah, but I, um, I'm thinking now of my own experience teaching in an elementary school, and I didn't teach ESL, um, but I did see the kids getting pulled from the classroom for mm-hmm. ESL, and it is really different because when I taught EFL in France, I had the entire group of kids, we were all on the same page, we were all right. doing the same thing, no one was being singled out or left behind, um, and with ESL in the United States, because they're generally are only a few English language learners in a class or in a grade or even in a school, depending on what school it is. Um, these kids are being pulled out of the classroom, so it's a balance because they're missing something else sure. to get their ESL instruction. Um, and I think that that would be harder for me. I, um, I'm i kind of a control person, and so I like having the whole classroom and being in charge of what everyone's doing and not worrying about like, well, what's this kid missing while I'm working with him or her? Right. Right. Um, I, did you notice anything about like stigmas too about the students being pulled out? Like, were they treated differently by their classmates or? Well, I don't. I didn't notice anything um, negative, but I did. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't notice anything negative from the perspective of the kids. But from my mm-hmm. perspective, um, the ESL teacher would come and pull a kid. And then maybe the reading teacher would come and pull a kid, and then the resource teacher would come. And so, um, from my perspective, it it was like I did kind of always wonder, like, well, I wonder how the kids see this because, like, are they picking up on which kids are the ones being pulled from the classroom, and are English language learners being categorized with um, with other kids who are being pulled out because it's really not the same at all. Right. right. Um, so yeah, I think. No, I don't. I don't know. Like I said, what the kids thought, but it, it's interesting that um, that I saw it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should talk then about what we do know a little more about is ESL with, with adults. adults. Yeah. Yes. So you know, a lot of times um, when immigrants arrive, they're starting at a a lower level, mm-hmm. maybe in like a community education type of program, um, and their needs are kind of urgent. And they're looking for practical English. They're not looking to necessarily talk about, you know, um, a trip or anything like that, like maybe an an EFL class might. Um, But they basically need to survive. And so they're maybe less concerned with those technicalities and um, the specific, you know, perfect grammar and that type of thing. Right. Well, and when I think of it, um, because neither of us have experience teaching EFL to adults, but we've both um, taken French, Mm -hmm. and so that would be like French as a foreign language, because we were taking French in the United States with other American students, and so it it was more like EFL, but French. So, you know, in my experience taking French, we, you know, I took a cinema class, and I took a literature class, and it was... Um, very topical, you know, there was a conversation class and um, it was just broken down like into these sort of interest areas and it, it was definitely less urgency because you didn't need to learn how to buy a bus ticket or pay for groceries. Right, and I think you hit on the, the term interest areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that is a key difference where in an um, EFL type of program, you have a little bit of a luxury to be able to decide, well, do I want to take the cinema class? Where with an ESL program, it's like, well, what's going to give me a better job? How can I communicate with my neighbors? How can I communicate with my child's teacher? Um, and those types of issues that are really more, um, I don't want to say that one's more important than the other, but I think that they're just well, more survival-based and practical, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, you know, when I'm working with an ESL student, my goal is to kind of always look at that big picture and help them see the big picture. 
because sometimes they'll get so caught up in the class that they're taking, you know, in the, you know, did I get an A, did I get a, you know, C, whatever. Um, but I try to like find out from them, so what are your goals? You know, let's see what this, this long game is for you so that we can figure out a plan beyond just this class. Right, and I think that that um, is really applicable to my experience teaching this summer because, mm-hmm. you know, um, how worried I was about teaching this English class to business students because I don't have a business background and I stressed out about it a lot and then I, I kind of what helped me come around was when I looked at the big picture mm-hmm. these students are new to the United States um, they all have experience they have undergraduate degrees in business and have work experience in business they don't need me to be an expert in business the big picture was to get them um, acclimated to an English classroom to speaking right. To speaking in English and to reading and writing in English especially. Yeah. And I've been recently planning with our friend Nancy that we talk about all the time. We love Nancy. And she and I were planning for a pronunciation class because we're both teaching it in the fall. And really after talking with her, I started to feel like maybe rather than call it a pronunciation class, it should be a communication class. Because I feel like teaching more communication skills will help them become at better English citizens, so to speak. Yeah, and I've taught that class before also, and I um, I think without even pinpointing it, that's what I did too, because pronunciation really isn't a big picture issue, right. like unless it interferes with comprehension. Um, I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, making yeah. yourself understood, having the ability to have a conversation and make your needs known, to me is more important than whether you can say the R perfectly. Because exactly. probably you can't. Right. <laughs> if you learn English after a certain age, then you're going to always it's struggle always with certain challenge. Sounds. And I think that the best way to approach it is to manage that so that it's understood. Right. Um, but also, one thing Nancy and I talked about was, you know, when people are trying to kind of shed their accents so that they sound more like an American, you know, what do they lose? in terms of their own culture, their own sound, their own language identity. Um, So I think that, you know, that's definitely something to consider. And if I were in charge, (laughs) I would change it from pronunciation. You should be in charge. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. Finally, somebody somebody sees it. And you will be. Finally. One day. One day. (laughs) So communication skills, that would be my class that I would put as a priority. And you could even... Make it specific to different majors or fields so that people learn how to communicate. You know, somebody who's going to become a doctor is going to communicate very differently than somebody who is going to be a teacher or who is going to be an accountant. And so I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of how we're approaching our ESL classes. Absolutely. And so um, speaking of how we we approach our ESL classes, the planning and preparation is very different if you're teaching ESL versus EFL. Um, and so kind of, even though we don't have a lot of experience with the EFL, let's sort of t- talk about the major differences as far as lesson planning. Um, so we've already said how important it is for ESL students to get their immediate needs met. Right. So you want to have a lot of hands-on instruction and really practical activities. Um, authentic situations like we talked about in a previous episode, things like this that um, can really help the learner integrate into the outside world where they're living. Yeah, I am a fan of giving students the language that they need. So so they may know that they need to start their utility uh, for their, their electricity. They may need to know that they need to start that. But they may not need, they may not realize, you know, there are certain ways that we say things or certain things that they're going to ask. And so I think, you know, that's just one example, but there are a lot of different examples, even in a more academic sense, in terms of what your teacher is going to expect in terms of participation in class. Right. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think anytime you can kind of, um, give them that, it's a little bit of a cultural bonus. You know, even if it's a writing class, but you're giving them something else that they can use in the real world. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Whereas with EFL classes, um, the focus is less on 
authentic situations. Um, well, l- less on everyday situations, right. I guess. Um, and you can kind of isolate the different areas, like we said before, in terms of subject matter, but also just in terms of the different components of language learning, like speaking, listening, pronunciation. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, a lot of times when people take these EFL classes, their goals might be still kind of fuzzy. You know, like they're not sure, it's ambiguous. Will I be going to another country or not? Right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe just to travel. Maybe it's a language requirement for college. Yeah, maybe it's a language. Yeah, I mean, I took seven years of French in, in a very typical EFL type of program. And, um, or, well, well still EFL. Well, yeah, FFL, I guess you'd say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I felt like it was lacking in terms of like me as an immigrant didn't serve me as well as I would have liked. I mean, I had those grammar rules memorized. Right. I'd tell you all about the subjunctive, but mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know. I learned more about English grammar when I took French than I had yeah. ever done before. I know, I know, you do. You do. And so I think it's good in that way because it helps you kind of explore language. I'm always a fan of exploring language. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I do think it's it's healthy to ask, how am I going to use this? What are my, my goals in using it? So, um, you know, if I were teaching an EFL class, I would definitely focus on practice because students won't have authentic situations to use. So it's our duty to expose them to yeah. these situations. And that's what yeah. I, I didn't mean earlier to say that we wouldn't do anything authentic. It's just that we have to to create an authentic situation, which is kind of an oxymoron. It's, it's not, not authentic. It's yeah. not authentic. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. And um, this is one of the reasons I was glad I happened upon the presentation at TESOL um, where the, the speaker was talking about how he taught English in Japan and he was teaching verbal pauses, saying things like like, um, because these students would have no access to that, even though, right. I mean, listen around, you know, in the U.S., most people are, are using more casual English and so I really liked his approach to doing that because it can help them in terms of you know being understood and understanding when they get there so if they get there. And was that um, the presentation by Darren Divers that that I saw with you also or was that a different No, 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 no. this one was um, oh gosh. Because he taught in Japan also I think or maybe not maybe he just well, he uh, taught us Japanese during yeah. the presentation. No, I didn't see Darren Divers. I saw, I can't, I wish I could remember the guy's name and not feel bad. But he was, when we did our TESOL recap, if you want to listen to that, I episode specifically five. talked, yes, episode five, I specifically talked about this man because he had a lot of energy and it was a really interesting talk. And even though I don't teach EFL, there were things I took from it specifically for my pronunciation slash communication class. So, yeah. Well, um, because like like I said before, we don't have a lot of experience teaching EFL, we want to share our sources. Um, we looked at the Oxford University Press English Language Teaching Global blog, and we read an article by Kate Bell. And then we also looked at the website Teaching ESL to Adults. So um, that barely scrapes the surface, I'm sure. So if you have experience teaching EFL and you'd like to share um, or add to what we've said, we would love to hear from you. We definitely would, and we'll talk later about how to reach us. All right. Okay. Okay, so for the methodology section in this episode, we're going to talk about audio learners. You may remember that in episode 11, we talked about visual learners. So if you didn't catch that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen. And we hope to talk about kinesthetic learners um, in the future. So stay tuned for that. Um, Stephanie, can you start us off by telling our listeners what, how we would identify an audio learner? Sure. Um, you know, so when you're thinking about different types of learners, sometimes there are cues that they give you to let you know what their preferred learning style is. And so, you know, one of these cues would be that they have a good memory for conversations, jokes, music, or lyrics. Um, anytime anything like that is is there, it shows that they're 
extra attentive in, in the auditory way. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because um, I never thought of myself as an auditory learner, but I definitely do have a good memory um, for conversations, jokes, music, things like that. Um, I also um, enjoy conversation, listening to music, things like that. And I never knew I was an audio learner. And um, so if, if you can't recognize that about yourself, it's sure easy to miss in the classroom. But think that it's important because if you know what kind of learner someone is, then you can help target their preferred learning style and maybe make learning easier or more fun for them. Um, so again, auditory learners um, are going to have a good memory for conversations. They might like to sing or hum or whistle to themselves. They probably prefer oral presentations over written presentations. They may be slow readers. Things like this that are fairly intuitive, but like I said, they can they can really help you um, reach out to those students. Exactly, and you know, I think that that, even if you're just trying, you may not always you know, hit the nail on the head. Um, I think as long as you're trying to kind of figure out your students in a way um, to help emphasize their learning style, you know, I think that's great. And maybe even if somebody's struggling, you could even ask them, so, you know, these are the different types of learners, what would you consider yourself to be? And yeah. that might be a way to kind of open up a dialogue with a, with a student who's not doing well. Right, and I think that probably teachers in, instinctively um, lean towards teaching in the way that they learn, and so um, a teacher who is a visual learner might have a heavily um, visual class, but it's important to remember that students are going to be all types, so right. Um, that you need to, to have a good variety of um, lessons that address all of the learning styles so that you reach everyone. And that's something I have to keep in mind because I would say I'm about 60% visual and 35% kinesthetic and 5% auditory. I'm not someone who can just sit and listen to a lecture and walk away with a ton of information. And yet, Stephanie listens to more podcasts than I do, which I know. is funny because I do consider myself an audio learner. I know. You know, I'm surprised by my my podcast um, love as well, but I'm not, like, having to take a test on it True, or write it's about enjoyable. it. And so I'm not necessarily absorbing all of the details, So, if, as I would if I were reading or actually doing something. So, you know, it's something that I'm constantly working at because... You know, I want to I want to be a little more accessible auditorily. Good. Um, so we have some tips then for teachers how you can reach out to your audio learners, and we've divided it into uh, three basic levels: beginning, intermediate, and advanced. But of course, these levels are fluid, and anything that you do in one level could probably be tweaked or adapted to work well in another level. So um, just to break it down. Um, some ideas for beginning or uh, beginner students would be to read the directions out loud while also providing them on paper or on the board. I know that for me, I would much rather have someone explain to me how to do something than read the directions myself. And I'm a big reader, so this is kind of yeah. embarrassing for me to admit that I would rather just have someone tell me what to do. But a lot of students are that way. They can be overwhelmed by um, a big blurb of directions that they have to read. And so if you read them aloud, um, plus then they're getting the visual and oral intake. You're right. And I think it also opens up an opportunity for students to ask questions. So if even if that student happens to be really shy, there may be other students asking questions and you know for further explanations. And so that could be helpful for the auditory learner as well. Um, you know, also, one thing that you could do uh, would be to paraphrase or restate directions, especially difficult words. And I kind of find I do this anyway. Definitely. Te because teaching English as a second language, when somebody doesn't fully understand what you say, I mean, I think we all can agree that just repeating it the exact same way that you said right. it is not always effective. And so, I mean, I find I do this in my everyday life, like with family, my children, um, you know, if they say what or huh and they're not getting it, I try to rephrase it in a different way. Yeah, I definitely, I was uh, doing placement early, uh, interviews earlier for new students and um, one of the questions that we ask students is how old were they when they came to the United States? And so um, 
I asked a woman how old she had been when she came to the United States, and she didn't quite understand, so I said, your age, what was your age when you came to the United States? And um, so that's just an example of, of how you could rephrase it to make it more accessible for someone who didn't understand. Exactly, exactly. So another thing that you could try would be, um, you know, to allow students to record lectures. And I know that some, some people are torn on this one. Um, you know, and I prefer that they ask my permission before they do record. And I also state that I do not want to end up on YouTube <laughs> or anything like that. So, um, you know, but I think it can be helpful for those auditory learners who may be so focused on the presentation or your lecture that they're not taking as thorough no notes as they could be. Right. And so they can go back to it later. Yeah, and that's, you know, maybe that's something that we could discuss in another episode, uh, note-taking and how you don't want to try to write down literally everything that's being said because then you're bound to miss out on on things that are being said after. So yeah, taking notes um, is, is hard enough, but if you're an audio learner, um, it might help to be able to replay the lecture a couple times. Exactly, exactly. Um, so also, you know, there's word associations or verbal mapping. Um, you know, maybe even doing some verbal brainstorming to like connect some supporting ideas to more main ideas. Um, that's something you could do either like in group work or even as a class. And you could even have somebody for the visual learners not to leave you know anybody out. You could have somebody writing everything down. But just to go over it verbally, I think could be beneficial for auditory learners. Yeah, and I'm thinking of um, a particular class that I teach the intermediate academic English and we do a lot of summarizing and paraphrasing and students are always struggling with it and um, so this semester I'm planning on having students um, paraphrase together in groups before writing it down and I'm, I'm just hoping that um, by doing it orally instead of trying to write it down that maybe they'll get the idea better because when they're writing it down they're concentrating so much on on making it look exactly like what they just wrote. Right, right, yeah. And I, it, it does give them additional skills, so. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I also like the idea of having students read aloud, so uh, either reading aloud to themselves or to classmates um, I think could be very valuable, or listening to a book on tape at the same time that you're reading. I wouldn't recommend replacing reading with any of these things, but um, you know, you have someone read aloud to you while you follow along in your book and take turns. Right. That can be good. And then you're taking, um, getting a little breather in between. Sure. Or listening on, on tape while you're following along so that you're getting both inputs. Right. Although this one I think is, it, it can be a slippery slope because you don't necessarily want them to just get their entire book on tape. Um, True. Like in the class that I'm teaching, in the fall, our book is a 526-page book. Ah, yeah. So it's pretty massive. Um, and that would, you know, listening on tape, if they just did that, I think it would, A, give them an advantage over other students who are actually reading it. But B, you know, they may not, they you know, if they're in the car driving, they might be as focused as if they were sitting. You know, well, definitely. And if they're, if they're not doing any reading at all, then they're not practicing... Um, decoding or trying to sound out words or yeah, figure literacy out. skills. So sure. obviously that's important and you don't want to replace it. Um, but as a supplement. Um, and then another idea for beginning students would be using mnemonic devices. Um, and so that would be, for example, uh, fanboys uh, to remember the coordinating conjunctions. Um, we're going to talk about a special mnemonic device later called Parsnip, and so s stay tuned for segment three, and we'll tell you what that's all about. Right, or Parsnip, however you want yeah. to look at it. Parsnip, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, moving on, though, to intermediate learners. Again, you could use any of the things that we've already talked about, um, but to, to add to it, um, you could supplement written work by assigning oral presentations. Um, I know that we do that in our academic English classes. They do a lot of uh, research. They take all these notes and then they write essays and they do maybe, in some cases, an annotated bibliography or a book review or something, and it's a lot of writing. And so at the end of it, we usually have them do a presentation as well. And that's nice because it gives, A, it gives the student 
a way to kind of show off what they learned to the class so that it's not just about what they wrote in their essay. And it's a chance for their, their classmates to learn because they all research their own topic um, and spent weeks doing it. But then in a very short period of time, by listening to a classmate's presentation, they can learn about all these other topics right. that they didn't research. Yeah, I do like adding in the oral presentation. I don't think it just has to be a communications class to do that. I think um, you should be able to present on any subject that you're you know, taking a class in. And so I, over the years, and maybe it's because I've worked in the communication lab for a while and I saw a lot of presentations, but maybe, you know, I think now it's a good idea to try to do as many presentations as you can. And I let students know, even though they sometimes fear it, that it's, they're in a safe environment and it's better to get some practice in in an environment where everybody is an ESL student instead of when they get into English 101 or communications 101 and you know nobody else in the class is a non-native speaker. Right and I came across a quote um, when I was planning for this upcoming semester um, and the quote is from Einstein and it's if you can't explain something simply then you don't understand it well enough, and so I like the I like the the idea behind that that um, as a way of gauging whether someone understood their topic, have them explain it to the rest of the class. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the next one might be to incorporate music and videos to supplement the reading and lecture. And I know we've talked a lot about videos, and we even had a whole segment on our favorite videos. Um, but I do think that the videos kind of help further cement the um, ideas and maybe if it's something historical, things about that historical era, um, that can help. Music, I'm I don't use as much. And I know we talked about this too, but I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like maybe I should challenge myself this semester and play some tunes in my class. Yeah, it depends on the class. You know, I had a lot of fun doing music in my grammar class last semester, mm -hmm. um, not just the Schoolhouse Rocks videos, which I talked about, but also um, if you Google or you search on YouTube, um, you can find all kinds of like video montages of different songs. Um, and while the songs are playing on the screen, different words, the, the lyrics will show up and it will highlight whatever the target is. So like you can pick songs that just target coordinating conjunctions or, right. you know, and so that's kind of fun. So one thing reminds me of something I saw recently on Facebook and I thought about using it, to, but this would be more to make a point against using translators to like write your paper in your first language and then use a translator, translate it to English and then just cut and paste and turn it into your teacher. There's, uh, there are these videos where they take popular songs and one is like, I think One Day More from Les Miserables and they basically like ran it through a translator ran it back into English, and then you hear how silly it sounds because it sounds nothing like the original song. And I thought that first maybe I could play the original for them and then play this kind of like garbled, cut up, yeah, version of it and see, you know, have them see the difference and how using translators, it's, it's okay for like one word here and there, but it's not something you want to like cut right. and paste. A ton of text into. So. No, I like that idea. I remember when you found that, and I remember thinking that would be a cool thing to do in class. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I kind of mentioned already about doing some reading groups um, to supplement written journals, and I'm definitely going to do that in this upcoming semester. I plan to have students um, working in on their journals together in groups so that they're paraphrasing something aloud before they write it down or summarizing something aloud. And I think the advantage there is that when you're doing it out loud, you're not as likely to look at what you are paraphrasing or summarizing because you're just having a conversation with someone and it's so much less pressure. And when you're doing it on paper, you're looking back and trying to, to copy the words. And so I'm hoping <laughs> that it will uh, lead to more accurate and less plagiarized. Some yeah. <laughs> so will we'll you have someone in the group kind of be the recorder while the, everybody talks, or will it just be kind of like um, stay verbal? No, they'll, they'll uh, for the paraphrases, they'll do it verbally, and then they will each write down their own version. Okay. Um, for the summaries, they'll do it verbally, and then they'll go home and write their summaries. Gotcha. Because I still need for each student to turn in a journal. 
Sure. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and then for advanced students, I think all of these same things that we've mentioned could work. Um, oral presentations, things like that, that we've talked about already. Um, and then we like the idea, obviously, of listening to and creating podcasts, since that's kind of our jam. Um, and we, <laughs> at TESOL last spring, heard a presentation by our colleague, Amy Reuther, who uses podcasts in her classroom. And um, I think, you know, we talked about that when we reviewed TESOL in episode five. Um, but I think that that could be a really w- cool thing to do in an academic English class, not just in an oral communication class, but even right. in a written writing and uh, reading class. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things I like to do, and I learned this, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I learned this technique from my OBGYN. <laughs> and when I first... When you were getting a Brazilian wax? Yes, when I was getting my Brazilian... Jean. <laughs> uh, so my, my OBGYN, when I first met her, you know, I was interviewing her, um, trying to figure out if she's the right person for me. And at the end of our discussion, she said, what other questions do you have? Which seems, okay, simple enough. But I like the way she phrased that rather than, do you have any questions? Like she assumed, I have a lot of questions. Um, And she also communicated to me that she was making the time and space for me to ask those questions. And so I've kind of incorporated that into teaching um, as best I can. And in fact, I did it tonight when I, I worked placement as well, but not in the same place where Jean was. But um, when at the end of every time, every interview, I would say, so what questions do you have for me? And most of the time, everybody had a question. There's one person who was like, oh, I'm good. But everybody did have questions where maybe they wouldn't have felt as comfortable if I hadn't, you know, just basically assume that they do have questions. Right. And I think that this kind of leads to our next pointer, which is to ask students questions. And um, I would I would add to that that we should ask open-ended questions because yes or no questions, like do you have any questions, <laughs> which could be answered with a yes or no, um, that just encourages a one-word answer. Yeah. So we want to ask our students lots of questions and we want to sort of manipulate the question in such a way that they're um, encouraged to answer with more than one word. Right. And I think that models good behavior in terms of teaching them how to be students in an American classroom. Um, Absolutely. Because we are a culture that we ask a lot of questions. We feel like, you know, we want to be part of the discussion. And um, these days, especially with the internet, we are part of the discussion most of the time. And so there is that expectation in an American classroom that you're going to ask questions if you have them um, and that you are going to be asked questions. So I think it really kind of helps in a cultural way too. a cultural bonus, which is actually one of the topics we'll discuss in the future. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's a great idea. Definitely. And when you ask students questions that get them to participate, then um, everyone's benefiting from that because audio learners um, they need a lot of input. If if all they're hearing is you, that's not really preparing them for when they move on to a different class or when they're just in their everyday life having a conversation with someone, but if you encourage active participa- participation in the class, then then um, the students are getting a variety of different voices and accents, and it's really helping um, increase their listening comprehension skills. Exactly. For segment three today, we'll be doing our new feature, Culturally Speaking, Um, and we're going to talk about taboo topics, and we got the idea from um, the LinkedIn group for the TESOL International Association, Um, and if you're not a part of this group, I recommend it because there's a lot of great conversations that happen every day. In fact, there's a lot of other LinkedIn groups where there are great conversations too, so um, get on LinkedIn and... (laughs) Yeah, and you, join the conversation. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, you can then see all of the different yes places that Likewise. I follow, the different True. groups I follow, and then I could see the places that you follow, and we could just be expanding each other's horizons. So wow, a big old plug-in 
plug yeah. for uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I was like, so money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we were, uh, we were reading one of their conversations, and this one dates back to July 4th, um, and it was titled uh, Parsnip, Taboo Topics. And the parsnip is a mnemonic device, which we talked about in the last segment. Um, and it stands for politics, alcohol, religion, sex, narcotics, isms, and we don't know Air. what the last P stands for. Air, because we have no idea. So, because um, Anes, right? Is that it's Anes Abdelrahman? Yeah, it left us hanging on the last P. So Anes, if you're listening, what does that last P let stand us know. for? Or if anybody else knows, if you're familiar with the parsnip, yeah, please let us know. Um, so yeah, so these are um, these are all topics that it's. It's interesting and ironic because these are very obviously taboo topics. I don't think we need to explain to anyone why they're taboo, and yet I don't think anyone would be surprised to know that these topics come up often um, in the classroom because students are interested. Um, in the class that I taught this summer, I tried to begin every class with a free writing session, and because these students were new to the United States, I tried to pick things that were either related to culture or current events. and. Um, I would just pick out of the newspaper. So one day in the newspaper, there was a headline about um, the legalization of marijuana, and recreational marijuana in, um, in Washington state. And another day, it was the, I think, 20th anniversary of when the legal drinking age was changed to 21. And another day, there was a headline about gay marriage in Utah. And so these were basically all fell under the taboo topics um, and I had students write about them because I don't think that we want to create uh, I mean taboo is is partially you know what we make of it like if, right. if something's taboo it's because we make it taboo so I kind of didn't want my students to feel like um, these were off limits yeah I agree and I think yeah as long as you're modeling respect and talking about it and not Letting it get too out of control, I think it, it is a good idea. And I really love your idea about pulling in the different current events to show, um, you know, exactly kind of what some of the taboo topics are here and how polarized sometimes people can become over them. Right. And because it was a reading and writing class, I had students do their free writing on these topics. So that kind of helped with, um, with the whole taboo topic thing because they, they weren't put on the spot to share their feelings with their classmates necessarily. Um, they were just writing about it and sometimes I collected it and sometimes I didn't. Um, and I encouraged them always to think about um, not only their feelings about the topic but how it compared to uh, their experience in their native country. Yeah. And I like talking to students about, you know, does this, is this something you can talk about in your country or not? Because one of the obvious um, examples that come to mind for me is in France. Everybody talks about politics. doesn't matter what side and you sex. fall on. Well, <laughs> Frankly. <laughs> I've got a few stories on that that I'll just keep to myself because we've already we've probably said too offended much. our we said too much. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, with politics in France, everybody's talking about it. Nobody is getting too highly offended by um, your point of view because they recognize that it's your point of view. But somebody who has that belief, and if they come here, then it can be problematic because, you know, we don't usually have open discussions with just anybody about our politics. It's personal. Yeah, and when we talked in um, a previous episode about um, um, high context and low context cultures, and that was in episode 12, uh, if you want to go back and listen. <laughs> <laughs> Your mind, I don't know, I do all the... The editing and the producing, and I don't even know what goes where. So. I do the cataloging, so Me? I can tell you it's episode 12, segment 3, high context versus low context cultures. Wow. And depending on what culture you come from, um, you might be more or less comfortable sharing in general, and then add on top of that a taboo topic, and you might have someone who really doesn't want to say anything. Right, yeah. Um, so we have some tips for teachers and we're going to do a little countdown. All right. So um, teachers, this is how you can handle taboo topics in the classroom. So uh, number five, raise cultural awareness. Um, and I, I think that 
without going into too much more detail, this is kind of what I was doing with my free writing activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to create the awareness of what's uh, what how these things are viewed in our culture versus their native cu- cultures. Right, and I think that's important because a lot of times, if you have large populations from certain countries, so for example, when I worked at the communication lab, um, I don't know, like 70% of the students I saw were from China. And a lot of times they tend to travel together. And so they're not necessarily um, getting a lot of exposure to that outside um, cultural, the outside cultural differences. And so I think if you can raise that within the classroom or if you're tutoring or whatnot, then I think that you're giving them a little bit another cultural bonus. Maybe we won't even have to do the cultural bonus. I just keep popping them in there. Or we'll just keep our listeners uh, hanging on for more and more and more, and they're going to want to know what that cultural bonus is. Yeah, maybe. So listen to future episodes, and and we'll tell you what that is. Um, Number four is know your audience. So I think it is important for students and teachers to really recognize, you know, who else is in the classroom, what may be some of their sticking points or challenges in terms of talking about some of these taboo topics. Yeah, and um, my summer class was, first of all, there were only four students. They were all male, same age and professional background, um, and not, they weren't all from the same country but two were from one country and two were from another and it was in the same geographic region so uh, it was a very homogenous group um or yeah (laughs) so anyway (laughs) um anyway so what I'm getting at is that I there wasn't the likelihood that they were going to be offending each other um but if you have a class like we do at the community college where you might have 15 students from 13 different countries and different backgrounds, and you might have, um, say, women from countries where women aren't, where they're not supposed to speak up or where their opinion isn't valued. These, these are the cases where you need to know your audience and be careful. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. So for number three, we have warm but not hot. And so in order to, you know, get the discussion going, one thing that you could do is allow it to get a little bit heated, you know, nothing too um, contentious or rowdy, but you definitely want them to be able to express their opinions and and share their points of view. And um, one example that comes to mind for me is in my listening class and students, we had our our end of the semester party, and I may have shared this story already, but where everybody kind of, they ate different things. Like one person ate meat or another person didn't eat ham like it was just very this this discussion was just very all over the place in terms of you know well what do you eat and what do you eat and it got a little bit crazy in the way where people were oh I can't believe you won't eat this or I can't believe you don't do that but it was never disrespectful and so by hot I mean it getting either where people are arguing or just being completely disrespectful so, Stephanie, what would you do in a case where where it went from warm to hot? Well, I definitely would step in when it got to hot. And I would, you know, ask the two people to just relax for a minute. And I'd ask them, to, I wouldn't ignore it. I would want them to continue their discussion, but I would ask them to maybe restate what they've said in a more respectful way. Maybe try to explain why what they said could be offensive to somebody. Um, and then, you know, let them kind of like pick it back up, hopefully at a cooler temperature. Yeah, and that actually brings us to number two, which is R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect. (laughs) We need to teach our students respect, and the way to teach them respect is by showing it. So we can model it, and we can also um, intervene when conversations get too heated and make it a learning moment. Exactly. Show them that everyone's opinion is valid and deserves respect. I completely agree. Sorry for singing. That's okay. I can edit it out later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that brings us to number one. And number one is keep Keep it it neutral. neutral. So Jean, how do you keep it neutral? Well, um, I try to not voice my opinion. So if 
if, for example, this summer when I introduced a topic, I had to be very careful because um, my students actually had a strong reaction to the gay marriage topic, and um, they were clearly uncomfortable with it, and I didn't want them to know that their discomfort was making me uncomfortable because obviously I'm pro-gay marriage. I, I think that, you know, if I had said that to them, though, it might have um, either, you know, made them feel bad or made them change their opinion so that then they weren't being honest or um, just make them feel even more uncomfortable, basically. So keep our opinions to ourselves. I think. Yeah, I generally do try to do that myself because sometimes I feel like they couldn't handle the truth. You can't, <laughs> you can't handle, handle the, the truth. truth. Because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a different, I'm just coming from a different background, but, you know, and then I don't want to be expected to explain myself either, you know, why I'm pro-gay rights or, you know, I don't feel right. like I should have to explain myself. I mean, I would have no problem doing it, but I just... That's not really the time or place for that. Right. And another example that comes to mind, um, I have had students in the past ask me, are you married? Uh, why not? Don't you want to be married? Are you going to have kids? And I, I think that uh, in the past I've gotten flustered and, you know, I'll, I'll usually just try to answer honestly but be kind of evasive. And I think what I might try to do in the future is make it a learning moment and keep it neutral. So yeah. instead of answering the question, I might say, well, how old are people in your country when they get married generally? Or what's the average age for people to get married? Or how is a woman viewed if she's not married by a certain age? And that way I'm deflecting the question and getting them to look at it from the perspective of their, uh, yeah. their cultural lens. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah, it could definitely be a, a good learning moment and a way to keep it neutral. So, um, and to, to show respect for different cultures by validating their cultural background. So by saying like, well, how is it in your culture? Not only are you deflecting the question, but you're saying like, hey, however you do it, that's cool. Right. So it kind of, right. uh, yeah, that, that's our five tips for us. They kind of all overlap and are intertwined. Um, exactly. If you have any, any more tips for us, chime in. Yes, please do. And uh, in the meantime, I think, Jean, we have some shout outs to give. Yeah, I want to shout out to all you audio learners who are listening to and learning from The Minimal Pair. Thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I have a shout out to Simon H. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm. It was great talking to you about my podcast. So, and we, now we know if you're listening, Simon. Exactly. You better, <laughs> better be listening. Uh, so, you can reach us on Twitter at The Minimal Pair, um, on Facebook, or um, via email, theminimalpair at gmail.com. And until next time, keep it minimal. Where are those ice cubes, Jean? They're on my legs. Awesome. <laughs>